Timothy chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. And I want to help you remember, and uh, for some of you who weren't with us, maybe uh, to kind of start out with an intro. Um, Last week, we were studying and looking at um, the qualifications of overseers or elders or pastors in a church and deacons, uh, the servants that God uses to do practical things. And what I wanted to remind you of is that um, he's given us these things so that we can understand um, the positions and the responsibilities of people that are serving in the church, but also to look at the character of those who claim to be godly. Uh, God is not just interested in lip service. He wants us to be uh, his representatives here on earth. And one of the ways that he does that is by changing us and transforming us by the power of his word. And if his word doesn't have an effect on us as believers, um, then what does it say about the God that we are truly worshiping? Uh, If we are truly worshiping God, we will become more like him. And that's one of the things that we'll see in this morning's passage. So just to start in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul has encouraged young Timothy, who is a pastor at Ephesus at the time, very large city, a very uh, what we might consider a metropolitan city. Lots of people traveling through, lots of pagan temples. And he's talked about the fact that the church of God is the pillar and the ground for the truth. It's, it's kind of a, a rock sitting there to be a reminder to the whole world that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what Hebrews says. And so if we think about the church in the fact that we are witnesses, we talk to people and we try to encourage the church to do what Jesus said and to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But the other side of it is, is that we are witnesses. We are to go witness, but we are witnesses of what we believe in. For instance, a few years back, I got on uh, Facebook and somebody had posted a recipe. Now, None of you have ever gotten really excited about a recipe on Facebook, have you? Well, I did. This thing was called uh, the bacon explosion. Now, no one in here likes bacon, but I do, okay? So can I get an amen? No. But in that recipe was so much pork that I'm pretty sure I lost 10 years of my life. But I was so excited about it, that, and we actually made one, we smoked it, and we did all, and I won't get into the recipe because I'll get all sidetracked and be hungry, and none of you guys will hear a word I say after that, but the bacon explosion was like bacon exploding in your mouth. It's the best explosion ever, but what was funny is that I was so excited about it, I went to work on Monday, and I was still singing its praises, and I was, everybody that I worked with heard the whole recipe, how good it tasted, saw pictures of it in the process. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, have you ever been that impacted by the Lord? That Monday morning, the Lord has spoken to you in such a specific way that Monday morning you can't help but tell people, this is what God showed me this week. This is something that's so life-changing, and I've been so impacted about it, I want you to know. Now, no doubt, I am guilty of not being that impacted by the Lord. But the Lord's desire for the church is to be his bride. And when people first get married, when they come back for their honeymoon, everybody's asking them, how are you guys doing? 
The wedding was beautiful. How was the honeymoon? And the bride is just over. He's the best ever. And it's just, you know, he's perfect. And life's just going to, and we're going to live happily ever after. And, and that is what we are to be as the bride of Christ. Not 30 years in when you're like, yeah, he kind of smells bad, you know, and I'm tired of being around him. But that, that new love of being that first love. And so this morning as we look at 1 Timothy, Paul has written to Timothy in verse 14 of chapter 3, and he says, These things I have written to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. How you ought to be conducting yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. A mystery is something that is kind of hidden, but then can be revealed and found out. A mystery is not something that can't be found out at all. A mystery is something to be solved. And so we don't have to solve the mystery He says here that the mystery of godliness is this. God was manifested or revealed in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world, and he was received up in glory. So we know that the mystery of godliness is found in the person and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, he continues on and he says, Chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food which foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So in verse 1 through 6, Paul speaks a hard truth, but really a warning to Timothy. He says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about apostasy. So I've put up there for you the definition of the word apostasy. This is just straight up from a dictionary. Is the abandonment or the renunciation of a religious or a political belief. So apostasy is to, to follow Jesus and then to depart from the faith. So whether you stand on the side of God is completely sovereign and once he saves me, I can't be unsaved, or to the point where you, some believe that I can be saved, but I have a responsibility to continue in that salvation, and if I don't, I will depart from the truth. So there are two camps in that, right? So which one do we believe? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches both, that God is the one who saves us. He's the one that gives us the faith. He's the one that opens our heart to salvation. He's the one that reveals the truth. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. But I also know that God has not made us robots, that we still make personal decisions every day. And he has given us minds and wills of our own. If you have children, you know that you can't force them to do anything. They can obey, but that doesn't mean that they're actually obeying because they want to. They might feel forced to do so. 
God doesn't force his children to obey him. What he does is he demonstrates his love towards us and that while we are, we are still in our sins and trespasses, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people. But while he died for us, he doesn't force us into salvation. He actually um, tries to, he woos us by his love. He compels us by his kindness and his grace. But at the same time, if we don't respond, there will be a judgment. There will be an accounting for how we lived our lives. And so uh, no matter what side you stand on, the Bible teaches that we are, are drawn to salvation by the holiness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of God. But he doesn't force anyone to become a part of his kingdom and to believe in Jesus. That's our own personal decision. And there are many, I'm sure, that you have know that went to camp when they were kids and they got saved, and then their lives from that point on looked nothing like a Christian. There's no fruit. But the reality is, is that if we want to continue in the faith, we must exercise ourselves into godliness. There are decisions that we need to make to become better disciples of Jesus, and yet at the same time, he will give us the ability to do those things. And so, he says, the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed or listening to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So the apostasy will be led by people that are teaching false doctrines, false teachings, teachings that don't align with what Jesus taught. And it's interesting that Paul was writing this to Timothy as Timothy is the pastor there at Ephesus because in Acts chapter 20, he had already expressed this to the elders there at Ephesus. Now, I do not know that Timothy was there at the time, but it says there in Acts chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 20, I went to chapter 10. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul is on the way back of it from his third missionary journey. And as he arrives there, he's, he's traveling from Troas, and he takes his ship down to past Ephesus. He doesn't stop in Ephesus because he's on the way back to Jerusalem. He's taking an offering from the churches to there in Jerusalem. And as he's on his way back, he stops at a place called Miletus. And it says there in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, he says, it says there from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he, said, he, he stops in Ephesus or in Miletus and he says, hey, why don't you guys go get the elders from the church at Ephesus and bring them to me so we can have a little powwow and talk about the, the comings and goings and the, the leadership of the church. I want to warn them about something. So he gets there in verse 18 and it says, when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with humility with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept nothing back that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. And I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. That's the gospel. To turn from to. And so he says there that it among many trials, he proclaimed to them the truth. You know, many people say, well, if, you know, if I'm telling the truth, it should be easy. But the reality is when you proclaim the truth in any nation, in any culture, it will rub somebody the wrong way. And for 
Paul, the, the hardest people to deal with were actually religious people. They were the Jews. They were the ones that had the Old Testament. They, they had a relationship with God that no other nation did. And yet when he came to them with the fulfillment of the law, Jesus, the Messiah they were looking for, he met much opposition. And maybe you found that out, that when you try to share truth with somebody that's religious, sometimes they're the hardest nut to crack. But we are incurably religious. And we can become so religious that we start to harden ourselves to the truths that God's still trying to work into our lives and transform us. Because you can get saved and still have a lot of things that God hasn't dealt with yet. Some things go away at salvation. It's just like God supernaturally takes those sins out of our lives and shields us. But there are some things that he, it seems, allows to stay in our lives to kind of remove the us from us, to kind of buffet us, to beat up on us so that we'll realize that we cannot be independent of God anymore. He wants us to be dependent upon him. And so he says there, in uh, Acts chapter 20, he says, but none of these things, verse 24, move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will not see my face anymore. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So this is one of the verses that I kind of stake my claim on as one of my verses as far as my calling as a pastor. I want to be innocent of the blood of all of those who I speak to, and especially this church. I want to teach the whole counsel of God so that we can become mature and whole Christians. You know, if, if you wanted to eat a meal and someone had followed the food pyramid or whatever the current day and age uh, theory is on eating healthy, you want to eat everything on your plate. Uh, why do we do with the Word of God? Why do we just eat portions and not all of it? All of it is God-breathed. So he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men, and I have not shunned or uh, neglected to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Then he says this, For I know this, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse or twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He says, Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So in this word, he not only tells them what his mission was, but he warns them what will happen after he leaves. You know, um, many times uh, the church is compared to a flock of sheep. Do you know how sheep defend themselves? They can't. They are defenseless. So many times we're, I'm the sheep of God. That's kind of a badge of honor because we are the Lord's. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. He takes care of us. 
He lays us down in green pastures. He, he puts us beside cool waters. He anoints my head with oil. A, a shepherd would take oil and anoint the head of a sheep to keep all the bugs away from it, the irritants. And that makes them not anxious. But the shepherd is interested in keeping watch over his flocks. And so Paul is very interested in the, the Ephesian church doing well and, and being taken care of. And so he warns them, when I depart... Savage wolves are going to come in among you. If Satan can't get you when you're before Christ, you know what he does? He joins the church. He comes every week. He wants to stir up derision and division. He wants to distract you from the things that matter the most in life. And he'll actually start proclaiming the word of God, but twisting it slightly so it seems right, but it takes you down the wrong path. And so he commends them and he, sa he, he says, therefore be watchful, and remember that I, for three years I did not cease to warn you, night and day, with tears. He prayed for them like they were his own children, but he also warned them regularly. Be careful. There are dangers out there. So back in 1 Timothy, we have Paul writing these same things. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. So let's look at some of the things that they were teaching. Next slide. Verse 1 and 2. Some of the things that they were teaching are um, found there in verse 1 and 2. Uh, they teach lies. Doctrines of demons is what he calls them. For every lie, there's inspiration. And in the church especially, there's inspiration from the one who desires to snatch the church, to mess it up, uh, to make it in unusable. But it also says they practice hypocrisy. And I think if there's one thing that you could probably say if you've ever invited somebody to church that doesn't go or used to go and doesn't anymore, what's one of the number one things that they say? I don't want to go to church because church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, Jesus, by the way, is not okay with hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, to play the hypocrite means to say one thing and do another. In our modern day vernacular, it might say, do as I say, not as I do. That's dangerous, right? So what, what Jesus said was, come and follow me. And he didn't say, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing right now. You guys stay here because I don't want you to see what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, I don't see many times in Scripture that he was alone unless it was first thing in the morning to go and pray with the Father. But eventually it looks like when he went to go pray, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he go by himself? No, he took the three with him, Peter, James, and John. And they fell asleep. But he asked them, come and be with me and pray so that we do not enter into temptation. Three times, actually. I ironically, Peter falling asleep, he ends up being tempted three times after that. But Jesus prayed for him, and eventually he restores him in the end of the book of Luke. But my point is, is that um, as believers, uh, we are not to be hypocrites. And if they can... Now... At the same time, if everybody in here was perfect, not one of us had even an ounce of hypocrisy in our lives, which, by the way, none of us do. Many of us have hypocrisy. God wants to reveal that, not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but so that we can be better witnesses, so that we can glorify him in every little compartmentalized area of our life. But he wants to remove hypocrisy. Look in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus 
confronts some hypocrites. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. It says there that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Now, isn't it interesting? The ruler of the synagogue mentioned that, that phrase, ruler of the synagogue. Who should have been the ruler of the synagogue? The one that was speaking, Jesus. He should be the ruler of the church. And it says there, the ruler of the synagogue had, a little, had some words with Jesus. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Imagine this, he's upset that someone's been healed. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, there's that word. He says, does the, not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to be watered? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years. The Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest. And they're telling this woman who is not able to rest because of her infirmity, hey, just rest, be warmed, be filled, be healed, just, just relax. She would say, I can't, I'm infirmed, my back is crooked. And so, <laughs> think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus was not light on those who practiced hypocrisy. And that doesn't just go for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That goes for his church today. If we have hypocrisy in our lives, God wants to rid us of it. He wants to set us free. Because look what happened in that story. The hypocrisy in the leader of the synagogue caused a woman not to experience the touch and the healing of God. And if we allow hypocrisy to remain in us, we are actually keeping people from the actual true love and faithfulness of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one blocking the bridge. I don't want to be the one that's keeping people from the life-changing power of God through Jesus Christ. And so, hypocrisy. The, and, and notice this. It says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron because of their hypocrisy and because of their blindness to it it says in their hypocrisy their consciences are seared with a hot iron now how many of you guys have burned yourself before i have maybe on the hand think about that patch of skin if you burn yourself on your skin many times you're not able to feel through it anymore now you can right away it, it gets very sensitive after you burn it, right? Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a birthday party for children, and of course, I had to be one. And they, it was at a gymnastics place, and they had this rope that was this big around. And you could climb to the top, and I was like, I wonder if I could still do this. 
Now, this is on a Saturday night, and I have to teach the next morning, but I go ahead and do something dumb. So I climb up it, and I was so excited that I could climb up. I kept going. Now, this isn't one of those, like, big gyms where the ceiling's way up there. And I was so happy that I got up to the top that I did not think about my exit strategy. So instead of just letting go and falling on the nice, cushy mat, I let go a little bit, and I slid all the way down. And as I say that, my hand hurts, just thinking about it. I weeped like a little baby girl. I did. My wife was, little kids were praying for me. They felt bad. Um, my hand was just scorched. Praise the Lord, I had somebody else leading worship for me that week. But on top of that, I had to teach the next day, and I wasn't finished studying. So try to think while you have a big burn on your hand. But my hand became very sensitive. But now that it's healed up, I can still feel things. But if you burn yourself over and over and over, eventually that skin becomes thick and calloused, and it's no longer sensitive. But what Paul is saying here is that these people that are teaching lies and practicing hypocrisy, maybe they're getting taught the Bible every week, but they're not putting it to practice, <coughs> making them hypocrites. If you listen to the truth long enough and you ignore it long enough, what Paul says here is their consciences become seared with a hot iron. They become calloused to the truth. So if, if you come to church weekly, I want to encourage you. Um, it will change your life if you will listen to the Word of God. But it's double-edged. If you reject it and just don't do it and put it to practice, you will become hard of hearing. You will. Not an if, you will. So become doers of the Word and not hearers only. So Paul warns them that these people will come in and they will, they will teach lies. He says, look at this, verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So <clears throat> verse 3 through 5 is essentially uh, what they were teaching. Um, they were teaching things that are, seem very godly. Um, they were forbidding people to marry. And uh, of course, we have certain uh, little skews of uh, Christianity where they have a priesthood where they don't have uh, marriages among the priesthood. Now, I would argue that in the Bible, there is no priesthood except for God has made us a kingdom of priests and saints, right? There is no longer a need for the priesthood because our high priest is Jesus himself. We don't have to go and confess our sins to someone that's a, a priest or a pastor. Um, God does call us to confess our sins to one another, but to represent God to man and man to God is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, but it says there that they're actually calling these people, they're teaching, they're forbidding people to marry to be more godly, essentially. Um, and they're commanding them to abstain from certain foods. And it's interesting, when we start rejecting the truth, in order to continue to follow religion of some sort or to feel like we're doing something for God, we start to come up with all these rules and regulations that God never placed upon us. For instance, simple things like marrying and food eating or not eating. Um, he says there they they're permitted to marry and commanding to abstain from certain foods. In other words, they are departing from the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is that God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, 
seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And he's coming back. But people complicate things. Well, that's too simple. So I just believe on Jesus and follow him and I'm saved? Maybe I need to add something to that. And so they came up with rules like don't get married or don't eat whatever the food is that's ungodly. They start to follow the Old Testament law, you know, and twist it and make it their own little convenient uh, rules and regulations. But um, they were departing from the simplicity of following Jesus. Uh, And they were taking things that God gave us to be a blessing and forbidding them. So God, who who came up with the idea of marriage? God did. Actually, it was like really early on. In Genesis chapter uh, 2, in verse 18, we see God setting up the marriage covenant. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, God had made the creation, and it said in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground of the the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. He got the name the animals. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that it was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not one found a helper comparable to him. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam responds. It's like a a phrase of worship here. He says, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. No shame. God made this institution so they could be co-responders to every situation in life. Marriage was given by God. And then Jesus, quoting from verse 24 of that same passage, speaking about divorce and marriage and all those things, he said, a man shall leave and, and cleave and cling to his wife. And so back here in First Timothy, if they're teaching that we are forbidden to be married in order to be more godly, that contradicts Scripture. So you can know the false from the truth by knowing the truth and being setting free from the false. And then he says, um, abstaining from foods which were given by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And look at this. He says in verse 4, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is if, big if, if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So if you're ever nervous about eating somebody's cooking, Here's an admonition. It's sanctified and it's cleansed. It's made pure by thanksgiving 
and prayer. And, and sometimes we just need to be thankful. But sometimes we need a spiritual intervention, a physical intervention from the Lord. When I was overseas in India a couple of times, I prayed over every meal, not just because I always prayed, but because I was praying for protection. I was praying for the, the food to be not making me sick. And I say that because I got sick every time. You know, I wouldn't say it was because I didn't have enough faith. I would just say it was because it's, it's hard. And God allows things so that we can be purified by them. But my point is, is that food and different kinds of animals or different kinds of vegetables to eat were made by God to be received with thanksgiving. And I know that because in Acts, um, there's a famous passage there where, where Peter was uh, going to be called by God to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is a Jew, but he was called to the Gentiles, right? Yeah. Well, at least in this passage he was. I'm forgetting my facts. But my point is, is that he was actually fasting and praying seeking the Lord's will. He was up on the top of a house, and these men were coming to meet with him, and the Lord told him ahead of time, these men are going to come to you, and I want you to go with them. And they were Gentiles. They were God-fearers. And as they came to him, before they came to him, he had a dream. And the dream was like man's best dream ever. He was up on the roof, he was fasting and praying, and all of a sudden in this vision, he was caught up, and, and a blanket unrolls before him like a picnic blanket. And it's full of every four-footed animal and creature. And the Lord said to him one phrase, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. A hunter's favorite verse. Rise, kill, and eat. Now, was he talking about we should be hunters? I don't know. But to Peter, he was saying, These animals that you've never eaten, as a Jewish man, that the law says you cannot have. I've called them good. I've cleansed them. I've sanctified them. Rise, kill, and eat. But what he was trying to tell them, what, what God was trying to tell Peter was, I'm calling you to the Gentiles, these people that you've seen as unclean as a Jewish man. I'm making them clean through the gospel. And so I want you to come be with them, eat food with them, eat a hand sandwich. Be all things to all men. It's no longer sin. It's no longer against the law because the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I want you to go and love these people. I want you to be among them, which means I want you to share meals with them. And to a Jewish man, that, that's hard. So he said, no, Lord, I've never eaten these things. And the Lord said, do not call unclean what God has called clean. And so as believers, we need to be careful about making rules and regulations that the Bible just, frankly, doesn't teach. Every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. If you can't eat the meal without being thankful, then don't eat it. But if you can be thankful for what God has provided for you, eat it. Be thankful. Worship the Lord in even the eating of food. You ever thought about that? A couple weeks ago, my buddy Jared was teaching a passage and, and he was talking about worship. And what he said was, did you know that things like catfish kettle were God's idea? And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, he was talking about this night that him and his wife went to eat catfish kettle. And if you've ever eaten there, it's like family style. It's fried fish. It's hush puppies. It's, if you like fried food, it is the best ever. And they just keep bringing it to you. Oops, I'll clean it, Heather. 
sorry. So what he said was, um, you know, the act of eating catfish kettle can be an act of worship. And he's talking about the fact that, isn't it interesting that the recipe they used to make it, God gave a human being the brain and the ability and the know-it-all to be able to kind of mix the ingredients together, try things, and develop a recipe. And he actually came up with the fish itself, the catfish. And he came up with our taste glands where we can, we can taste it. And, and so often we, we look at food and we go, that's ah, sinful to overeat. And it definitely is. But it's not sinful to eat. It's not sinful to partake of a good bacon explosion. You know, it's not sinful to eat food that God has made and called it good. He made it to be a blessing to us. He knew we would enjoy it. That's why he came up with the catfish. That's why he came up with olive oil. It's why he came up with bread. You know, eat some bread, enjoy it, and worship the Lord. But then at the same time, marriage. It's something he instituted to be a blessing to us. And if you're happily married, it is a blessing. I, I eat way healthier now as a married man, and I take way better care of myself, and I have somebody that's watching out for me, and I get to do the same for her. So marriage is not to be uh, forbidden, and food is not to be rejected. So God created these things, and he gave both of them to be received with thanksgiving by believers, and the proper enjoy enjoyment of them becomes an act of worship to our king. So verse 6 and 7. So we've looked at the things that we're not supposed to teach, but then he turns the page because the Bible is not about what we are not. The Bible is about the kingdom of God and what we are called to be. And so in verse 6, he says to Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, if you instruct the brethren in these things, they will be good ministers of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. He says, but you will. If you will teach what my word says, it will transform you as a result. So if you meet someone who is teaching the word of God, and yet their life has not been affected by it, red flag. Red flag. They're teaching the truth, and yet their lives don't exemplify the truth, be aware. They may be sheep and wool, or wolves in sheep's clothing. Man, it'd be a lot easier if they were sheep in wolves' clothing. You'd be like, hey, you're not, you know, but, but what he's saying is that we should be affected as ministers of the gospel by the truth that we teach, and hopefully you can see that in my life. He says, but then in verse 7, but reject the profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourselves towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, have a pro having a promise of this life that is now and which is to come. So in verse 6 through 7, feed the sheep of God, the word of God, nothing else. That's what he's saying. We don't need all these other books. Uh, we need Jesus. We need the real McCoy. Uh, nourish yourself on the word and nourish the flock of God and know the difference between the truth of God and a lie from hell. A lie from hell, if you look at Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness, may use the words of God but does not use the word of God. It will take a truth that God taught in his word and twist it just slightly so it seems okay. Think about when Satan said, hey, you know, the word of God says that... Uh, it, it says that, you know, he will give his angels protection over you. 
So why don't you climb up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump down, and then the angels will catch you, and you'll be able to show them that you're God. And Jesus said to him, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So looking at scripture to be the, the, the full final authority in your life. So anyway, he says, reject the profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. The word godly means godlikeness. And uh, the word of God is meant to do that. It's meant to transform us. How many, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many people do you know or how many of you would get up at 4 a.m. to go work out or 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., whatever it is where you can go and do it before you go to work? Many people do, and it's a good thing. God wants us to be good stewards of our bodies because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But how many of us would consider wanting to grow closer to the Lord and doing so by getting up at the same time to work out our godliness, to let God transform us, to let God cleanse us, to, to get strengthened in the word of God for the day. I would say there would be a far less number. But what Paul says here is he says, um, if you want to be able to instruct in the proper teaching, if you want to be able to reject the profane, then you need to exercise and get to know the truth. He says, for bodily exercise profits a little. And bodily exercise is a godly thing to do. I would encourage you in that. He says it, it, has, it has its benefits, but godliness or becoming more like Jesus is profitable in all areas of your life, all things. Having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. And then he says one of those phrases I challenged you guys to find last week. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. So what I want to talk about just for a minute is what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says. Paul wrote Romans, and in chapter 12, he picks up on this same thing of exercising ourselves Towards godliness and exercising ourselves towards godliness uh, starts with Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He says, Present your bodies, your lives, your souls as a living offering to the Lord. You don't have to kill it, you just have to present it. Lord, all I have is this life you've given me. Give it to me. We, we give it back to him. But then he says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and the only way to be transformed is by soaking ourselves in the word of God, just showing up just reading a little bit each day and, and letting it have an effect on not only our brains, but actually letting it have an effect on our heart, which will actually convert our brains. You know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to tell a newlywed to do nice things for his wife because his heart is so enthralled with his wife and he's just in love. And, he, you know, I, I remember things that I did when I first got married you know, my, my wife, before, when we were dating, she lived in Park Hills, and I'd drive up there just about every night to go see her, 
And then I'd come back home, and, and then I'd call her before I went to bed, and, there were, and I, we would stay up late even if I had to get up early, and we would just talk. Um, and, and I didn't have to tell my brain to make those decisions because I loved her. And love goes beyond what's logical. It just does. And for us as believers, if we truly have this first love for the Lord, it's not hard to get up early in the morning. It's not hard to sit down and read his word. We want to hear what he has to say, even if it's late at night, even if we got to get up early in the morning. But we become like the God we worship. We become like the God we worship. So if your life is becoming more like Jesus, then you're worshiping Jesus. But if you think you're worshiping Jesus and and you're trying to do all the things he's given you to do, and you're becoming less and less like him, I would submit to you that you're not actually worshiping Jesus. You might be worshiping success, or what people think of you, or whatever your, your worship might be placed in. So the idea is Paul encourages Timothy, get in shape and become more godly. Um, verse 10. Verse 10 says, For to this end we labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. So since we're talking about Timothy, and we're talking about him showing the difference between a true and a false believer, and really a true and a false teacher, let's talk about us for a minute. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, want to become closer to the Lord and we want to be used by him? Most of us in here probably do. But the question then becomes, how do we get there? Think about some of the Old Testament examples. Think about um, King David. King David is probably the most well-known for slaying Goliath. Do you know how he prepared to slay Goliath? He did what God gave him to do. He was a shepherd by himself in silence, in loneliness, with a bunch of sheep all the time. Nobody went out to see him. He was just out there by himself. While he was a shepherd, lions would come in and try to attack his sheep. So as a good shepherd, he would fend them off, sometimes with hand and fist, and sometimes with his sling. He became good at that. He exercised what God had given his hands to do, and as a result of that, he was used to slay Goliath in the same way. As a matter of fact, King Saul said, you're just a little guy. How are you going to go out there and slay Goliath? He said, don't worry about that. I've taken down lions. This guy's nothing, you know. And just the thought of slaying a lion sounds great in a movie, but to be actually there doing it, I would be terrified. Uh, but David was not terrified because he trusted the Lord and God had given him skilled hands. Another example is Joseph. Joseph was the youngest son of, of Abraham. And Joseph was sold by his brothers to some slave traders. And then, when he finally got a good job as a servant in the house of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife started throwing herself on him and wanted to lay with him in the biblical sense. And he, because he didn't want to sin against God, said, no, I will not. And because he did the right thing, God blessed him, right? Yes, he blessed him and put him in jail. And for that time in jail, he learned to trust the Lord, even though things didn't work out for his best in his mind. And then eventually through that, he became more and more of a servant everywhere he was. And God gave him prominence as the second leader of all Egypt. And he was able to save his people from a famine. 
but he did not learn to be a good leader by being a leader. He learned to be a good leader by becoming servant. Moses was called to be the deliverer of Israel. He was supposed to deliver them from Egypt where they were in slavery for 400 years. And when he learned the most was not when he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, but he learned the most when he was in the wilderness for 40 years tending sheep. So that when he came back, after God spoke to him by the burning bush, he came back and after learning in silence and, and in loneliness, he comes back and he delivers Israel. He's been humbled by the experience, and he's now able to be used by God. And let's think of one more example, Noah. Noah was a man who, like Paul writes here, um, he, um, he labored and suffered reproach because he trusted the living God. Think about it. You're a man. You have the skill to labor. God tells you make a boat. And then you start building a boat except it's never rained before, and you don't know what the word flood means, but you know God said, build a boat. So Noah builds a boat. While he's doing this, for 100 years, people came by and mocked him. They said, what are you doing? He goes, there's a flood coming, God told me, and if you want to be a part of this, you can get on the boat. And they said, what is a boat? What is a flood? You're crazy. You did not hear from God. But he kept building the boat. And he kept preparing the way. And all of the people that saw the boat were witnesses of it, had the opportunity to be saved. All of them. But Noah, being made fun of, kept building the boat, even if nobody listened. Because he would, at the very least, be faithful to do what God gave him to do. He builds the boat. The flood comes. All the animals are smart enough to get in. Noah and his family are smart enough to get in and the whole world perishes in the flood. God left a savior. He left the ark. He left an Old Testament example of Jesus. Now, we are called to follow Jesus. We're called to exercise ourselves into godliness. And the reality is, God has not called us necessarily to be the savior. He hasn't. We're not the savior. He's called us to do things like build boats. He's called us to do things like talk to people about Jesus. He's called us to just be a, a witness by the way we live our lives, to not be hypocrites, but to be true. And the reality is, many of them will laugh at us if we live godly. We will suffer persecution. We will be mocked. We will suffer reproach. But the reality is, um, their response is on them. All we are called to do is be faithful with God, what God's given us to do with our hands and leave the results to him. And the decision is up to them. They can get on the boat, or they can be judged. Frankly, I want to beg people to get on the boat. So, as a result of their selves exercising faithfulness unto what God called them to do, people were saved. In all of those examples, Joseph saved a whole several nations from the known world at that time from a famine. King David saved his people from this Goliath. Moses delivered his people out of slavery, and Noah delivered at least his family from judgment. So let me ask you this morning, are you being faithful with what God's given you to do? Are you letting God remove the hypocrisy from your life? Are you exercising yourself unto godliness? Are you believing the truth and rejecting the profane? Do you even know what the difference is? 
Because the Word of God is able to equip you to know the difference between the truth and the false. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Paul's investment in Timothy that we get to benefit from today. Just a simple letter that he wrote to Timothy to encourage him, to instruct him in his calling, to warn him about the the savage wolves that would come in and try to deflock the flock. And I pray, Father, as, as he has been faithful to proclaim these words, to be innocent of the blood of all men, I pray this morning that we as believers would not just hear these words and go about our business and forget them, but that we would be instructed ourselves in them, be transformed and become the pillars, the witnesses of the fact that Jesus did come in the flesh, that he did bear witness of the Father, that he was uh, the sacrifice for our sins, that he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles. May we do our portion in that. May many come to salvation through belief in Jesus, and may we return to you, Father, in your timing. When you come back, or if we go to you before you return, we want to be found faithful, Lord. So, Father, make us faithful. Help us to do what it takes and at the same time to trust you. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would be exemplified in the way that we live our lives. We pray that we would be like those who, like Noah, were able to at least save their own families from destruction and judgment. But we also pray for the salvation of our extended families and our coworkers and those that we see on the street and those that we see at McDonald's. Lord, um, would you save? Would you use us as your proclaiming instruments. And would you, at the same time, not help us not to be hypocrites. Help us to be those that show acts of mercy, like Jesus did in healing the woman, to, to help someone out financially, to give to someone that, that has a need, to pray for people that don't know you, just that they would be healed so that they'd know the Lord, but so that they'd also just be blessed and experience the kindness of the Lord. Open up our hearts, Lord, we need you in this task because it's impossible if we don't do it trusting you and, and asking for your empowering. So Lord, we love you and uh, we praise you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.